Well, it's uh, my privilege to introduce to you our guest speaker for the weekend. He's a dear friend of mine, and I don't know why he's my friend, but uh, he's very gracious and kind to, uh, to uh, pursue me and to invest his life in me and to uh, accept my invitation to come uh, this weekend. He's a very busy man and uh, got lots of commitments other places, but uh, Chris Mueller is a man I was um, uh, first exposed to when I was in college some 25 years or so ago, and uh, why are you laughing, Curtis? Is that, like, funny? That, oh, I just slammed him? Oh. Okay. Hey, I'm just feeling old, okay? So, Anyway, um, 25 years ago, as a young college student, sat under Chris's ministry at Grace Community Church. He was a college pastor at the time and um, moved around on staff at Grace Community Church, ended up being John MacArthur's personal assistant for a number of years before the Lord uh, directed him up to Spokane, Washington, where he served there for a number of years, and uh, then down in Phoenix, Arizona at another church, and then now in uh, Murrieta, California, Southern California, just north of San Diego, and that's where he's been ministering for the last eight or so years uh, at Faith Bible Church. And uh, Chris and his wife, uh, Jean, have two uh, boys, young, not even young men, they're good, godly men. And uh, they're, they're walking with the Lord, and that's an evidence of God's grace in their lives. Uh, they both serve uh, at their church, which is really cool to have your kids serving alongside you as mom and dad, and uh, just walking with the Lord together, serving the Lord together. And uh, that's very, very encouraging for them, I know. Um, but uh, Chris and Jean have been in ministry for as long as you've been married, and that's how long you've been married now? 32 years. So been in ministry a little bit longer, maybe 35 years or so. And uh, just um, some sages here as far as those who've uh, kind of been through a lot in life and ministry, and it's just a joy to spend time with them personally because you just glean so much uh, just from their lives and their ministries. And so... Chris has a, a particular passion for preaching. You're going to see that this weekend. God's gifted him to preach God's Word in a very practical, down-to-earth manner. And uh, he also has a, a particular passion for training men. And uh, a lot of what we're doing here with our Iron Men program, with our uh, Mighty Men program, uh, is, is uh, our Man Up, uh, are things that uh, I learned from watching Chris and what he does with his men at the various churches he's been to. Uh, he's kind of a legend when it comes to uh, a, a man trainer uh, because that's his passion. And so he spends his weeks uh, in life and ministry uh, studying and preaching and training men. And so uh, it's just a, a joy and a blessing to have Chris and Gene here with us. And I want to encourage you that uh, before the weekend's over, you just come and introduce yourself to them. Uh, they're very friendly folks. They'd love to meet as many of you as possible. And I know that you'll be blessed by any one-on-one um, -on -one interaction you can have with them um, this weekend as well. So let's give Chris a warm lakeside welcome. Thanks, Jen. It is an honor to be with you and to be back with you. I'm totally thrilled about it. I'm working through my bitterness over not being at the new facility. I really am. Uh, but I am so excited for you that uh, I get to be with you and that you're, what, two weeks away? Come on, you should be excited. This is incredible. And you're all wondering, wondering how fast was Ken really going? Uh-huh. Right? Aren't you? 
Yeah, let me tell you, all I heard from the policeman was something about warp speed. I'm not, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I can't believe that Ken and Kelly have been here for 15 years. I mean, they could be lifers if you treat them right. That's a really great thing. I would have loved to have been in one spot, and the Lord had different plans for us, but amazing fruit can come as a result of that. And uh, So please take care of them. And you're probably presumptuous right now, and you're thinking, oh, he told you to say that, didn't he? I go, no, no, I belong to a tiny club. All right, it's a very, very tiny club, uh, not many members, uh, a bunch of imperfect men who seek to live for Christ and, with all their heart and to teach authorial intent, what the Scripture has to say by letting it speak for itself and not make it say what you want, and to teach sound doctrine. It's a very small club. I don't know if you realize that. There are very few churches that are committed to this. I see a couple of people nodding their head, the rest of you looking at me with blank stares. Uh, but understand, it is a very small, exclusive club, and Ken is in that club, and anybody in that club personally is a friend. Uh, because men who are committed to teaching the Word in that manner are very rare today, and you are blessed to have a great one. So I hope you feel that way about them. And it is an honor, honor to be here at Lakeside. So I kind of want to open and set the stage this way. Imagine yourself, especially you men at this point, thinking about your wives, but you're in a locker room at a golf club, and a mobile phone on the bench rings, and... A man engages the hands-free speaker function and begins to talk. And like always, <laughs> everyone else in the room stops to listen in. And it's a hello, he says, and he hears the wife on the phone here. Honey, it's me. Are you at the club? Yes. I'm at the shops now, she says, and found this beautiful leather coat. It only costs $2,000. Is it okay if I buy it? And he says, well, sure, go ahead if you like it that much. Well, I also stopped by the Lexus dealership and saw the new models, and I saw one I really liked. How much is it? $90,000. Okay, for that price, but I want all the options with it. She goes, great. Oh, and one more thing. The house I wanted last year is back on the market. They're asking $3.5 million. Well, well, go ahead and give them an offer of, of $3 million, and, and they'll probably take it. But if not, we can go the extra half million if it's really that pretty good a deal. Oh, okay, I'll see you later. I love you so much. Bye. I love you too. The man hangs up the phone, and the other men are in the locker room, and they're, they're just staring at him with his mouth wide open in astonishment, mouths agape. And then he turns, the man with the phone, and asks this, uh, does anybody know whose phone this is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> now, I, I know you're hoping that won't happen to you. Um, wife is anything like the wife who is living out the scripture that is described in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you won't experience that because this is the authentic godly woman, a spiritually healthy woman, and we want to look at it. So if you have your Bibles and you're not there yet, please turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. All the passages of this weekend are going to come out of the epistle to first of First Peter. And so just stay with me as I read this. I want you to kind of follow along, if you would. And it is in your Bible toward the end if you're looking for it. You don't know where First Peter is. It's between Genesis and Revelation. You'll find it there. It says in First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, 
And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now understand, this weekend we're going to be looking at spiritual health. And a lot of times when we think about spiritual health, we think about character. And that is true, that spiritual health is manifested by Christ-like character. But often we forget that spiritual health is also manifested in the Scripture by relationship. So we're going to be looking at character and relationship and how we deal with one another. In the area of wives, first, because they appear first in the text, husbands tomorrow morning, and then we'll be talking about the idea of service and our involvement in each other's lives as well as our relationships with others in the body and outside of the body as an indicator of spiritual health and developing spiritual health, and then even as a congregation of people. There are directives out of 1 Peter as it relates to how we can truly be healthy and spiritually strong. So how does that all address health? Understand that when you glorify God, you glorify Him by reflecting His character. But you also glorify Him by reflecting His person, right? And the eternal person of God is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet one God, right? I'm not a heretic so far, right? It's one God, yet three persons, equal, yet functioning in different roles. And that is the model for relationships that the Bible tells us. And so as the closer we function to the Trinity in the way that He is like, then we bring Him glory. And that's what we're going to be discussing as we begin to walk through spiritual health. We're going to also talk about this idea of sound doctrine. Have you seen that in your New Testament? Have you read that word, sound doctrine? You realize the word sound is hegeus, which is where we get the English word for hygiene, which is what I say to my wife every morning, hygiene. But beyond that, it actually means clean or healthy or good. And when you read the context of the usage of sound doctrine, like in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he immediately goes on to talk about character and behavior in relationship. That actually healthy doctrine, is, when it's manifested in our lives, helps us to live like Christ, that means it's healthy, as we relate to one another. So spiritual health is not just what you know, but it's also how you treat others. Can I hear an amen to that? That's very vital that you grab onto that. It's not just what you know, but it's how you relate to others. There have been instances in early ministry for me of having people in the church who knew the Scripture. In fact, I had people telling me, this woman loves the Scripture, knows the Scripture. And yet I had never met anyone who was more bitter at other people. And the contrast between those two was revelatory. That you, you, you can know a lot, but it needs to be manifested in how you behave with others for it to truly be healthy doctrine. 
And obviously, you know in the scripture that you, you can't say you love God unless you love people. So we're going to be talking about this, and we're going to start with the wives. And, and, and the only reason we're going to start with the wives is because that's what Peter starts with when we get to chapter 3. So husbands, you've got to come back tomorrow. And wives, you've got to bring them back tomorrow, because otherwise it's really not going to be all that it's supposed to be. In fact, you're going to you know, feel a little left out. There's going to be some male elbowing tonight. And ladies, your elbow opportunities are tomorrow morning, so stick with me. Peter is writing Christians who are experiencing stormy seas. The waves of persecution are foaming and a hurricane's about to hit. Nero's about to come on the scene. And the government's beginning to turn against Christians. So Peter writes these believers, and if you just flip over really quick to 1 Peter 5.12, you can see the, the main purpose of this letter. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says this in the second half of the verse, I've written to you briefly. I love that when authors do that because they're telling you why they write. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. He wants his readers to stand firm in the grace of God. Be a rock of grace in the midst of a sea of persecution. And he's equipping them and getting them ready for some bad times that are coming. And so he basically goes through, as he begins the letter to 1 Peter, he begins to pour out some instruction concerning salvation. He starts in chapters 1 and 2 with salvation to be living the gospel every day. And I love the way he describes salvation because he says, if you look at chapter 1, verse 3, he says that God has actually caused you to be born again. Don't you love that phrase? He caused you to be born. He reached out to you. You were in rebellion against him. You were driving way above the speed limit. You know, he, you deserve the ticket, and God caused you to be delivered from that penalty. He, amen. Glory. Warp speed, even. So 24-7, what God wants you to do is to remember what he has done for you. We are to be saturated in the world of the gospel. We're to be breathing the air of the gospel, always remembering what God has done for us, to have the right frame of mind. It doesn't mean that it, it would take us away from obedience. It doesn't mean anything other than we should always remember and be grateful for what God has done. He said, in a persecuted environment, you must never forget that you have been saved by God, that God saved you a sinner. He didn't have to. You didn't deserve it, but he did so. So be saturated in that. Then when he gets to chapter 2 and 3, he begins to change direction and standing firm in God's grace involves the humble actions of submission. He moves from salvation to submission. And Christians only stand firmly in grace when they submit to their God-assigned authorities. Now in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, submit to unjust government. How do you like that? Unjust government that's persecuting them. In chapter 2, verse 18, he tells slaves to submit to even unfair, are you ready? Harsh masters submit to them. And now in chapter 3, he tells wives to submit to even unsaved, hard husbands. Chapter 3, he focuses on Christian wives who were not only being persecuted in their culture, but they're in a very difficult situation, far more than our own culture. You see, a wife married to a non-Christian man was automatically in danger since Roman homes worshipped uh, household gods who were thought to provide safety and bring blessing to each house. But an authentic Christian woman would refuse to acknowledge those 
household gods, those false gods, which would put her in conflict with her unsaved husband from the get-go. Plus, a, a, a Christian wife would not acknowledge the emperor as God, which would put her in conflict with her own culture. So if it was a Christian husband with a non-believing wife, then he'd simply bring his family to church with him, and culturally she'd be pressured to submit to the God of her husband. But a Christian wife with a non-Christian husband is in a very fragile position here. So with persecution on the rise and tension in the home, Peter shares the steps that a wife must take in order to stand firm in God's grace and have her life actually point to the reality of Jesus Christ. This is how you win an unsaved husband, this passage. This is the passage. But Christian wives married to Christian men, this is also a passage in how to influence your husband in the way God designed in order to encourage him in his own walk with Jesus Christ. It's a very powerful passage. This is the ultimate godly woman. This is the healthy Christian woman. So let's take a look at it, all right? Stay with me. You've got your notes there. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So he's saying, point number one in your outline, let Christ and his cross motivate your submission to your husband. Let Christ and his cross motivate your submission to your husband. Of course, the New Testament is filled with examples of submission. You find actually Jesus submitting to his parents in Luke 2, church members submitting to church leaders in 1 Corinthians 16, Christians submit to God in James 4. In this context, citizens, Christian citizens are submit to an unfair government, slaves, Christian slaves are submit to even unfair masters, and wives are to submit to their own husbands, Colossians 3, Titus 2, Ephesians 5, and now here in 1 Peter chapter 3. You might want to write this down. Submission is the character of heart to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. I'll say it again. Submission is the character of heart to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. You could even say this submission in all forms, children to parents as well, is a character of heart to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight in the idea that you take the initiative in the family. I'm glad when you take responsibility to lead us with love. I I don't flourish in a marriage when you're passive and I have to make certain the family works. So when Peter says here and tells wives to submit, he uses a word that means to subordinate, to place in order and under and in, in an orderly fashion to arrange or a military term to rank under. Ultimately, you might want to write it down to submit in everything but sin. Everything but sin. Submission here is ongoing, it's present tense, which means it's all the time. It's a way of life, continually subjecting yourself. And it's also in the middle voice, which tells us that it's not the husband who submits the wife, it's the wife who acts upon herself to submit to her husband. Now, if you've been married long enough to realize that your marriage license was really more like a learner's permit, and what started out feeling like a romantic horse-drawn carriage ride in a snowy day under a warm blanket when you got married ends up feeling like more like a toboggan ride down a triple diamond mogul hill that was roped off because it was too dangerous. Remember, you know, the, the difference... Every Christian in this room who's married knows that the husband's role of headship and the wife's role of submission is not easy. Can I hear an amen to that? It's not. 
And in this context, Christian citizens are to submit to persecuted government, and slaves are to submit to even harsh masters, and wives are now to submit even if their husband's unsaved. The common thread in all three of these examples in this context is unfair treatment, not getting what you want, experiencing unjust suffering. And what's our normal response when it's unjust? Right? Come on, be honest. What is our normal response when it's unfair and unjust? We push back. Correct? Please nod your head. Thank you. We do. If people misuse their authority, we don't listen to them or we try to hurt them back. And Peter understood this impulse to fight back, so he adjusts our thinking on submission in two ways. Are you ready? What's he do? First, in your outline, by Christ's character. By Christ's character. He asked the question in verse 1, in the same way, in the same way. Well, what's he talking about there? Now, when you think about the most intimate relationship that you know, when you think of a relationship of intimacy, who do you think of? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's some couple that you know. Let me tell you what your answer should be. Are you ready? Your answer should be the Trinity. The Trinity. The role of submission in verse 1 and the role of headship is all based on the Trinity. The reason we enjoy relationships is because before time began, God has been and continues to be in a perfect relationship of equal oneness and authority and submission. Now, the submission of a wife does have something to do with the created order of Adam and Eve, and submission has something to do with the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, but the marriage relationship of oneness and authority and submission is all based upon the Trinity. Marriage is designed to put the Godhead on display. And a godly woman knows she's seeking to display Christ through her submission in, in two ways. One is one with the Spirit and one with the Father and he, the eternal Trinity, and yet Christ also submits to the Father as his authority. That's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Uh, there in your outline, I have the ESV, and then I want to read the NASB. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may in all in all. In other words, this idea there is submission and authority within the Godhead. And a godly woman knows her role of submission to her husband is pointing to the role of Christ who submits to the Father. In Christ's equality to the Father, and yet in Christ's submission to the Father's authority. He actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.3, there in your outline, that the role of submission to her husband as head is the only way that people will correctly see Christ's role as equal yet submissive to the Father as head. And that's why he says God is the head of Christ in this context. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, he's saying that the man is the head of a woman and Christ is the head of every man and God is the head of Christ. And what he's saying is, like the Trinity, we're seeing this lived out here. So it's not an issue of inferior and superior. It's an issue of functioning in your God-designed roles so we're putting the Trinity on display. It doesn't mean inferiority. Uh, submission is imitating Christ's character. Let me put it to you this way. Submission is an attribute of God. And marriage is designed to model the Trinity, and modeling the Trinity involves three major commitments. Already? Stay with me. It's to live out authority and submission like Christ does to the Father. That's one. Two, it's to live out oneness like Christ is one with the Father. And if you understand anything of the Trinity, the focus of each member of the Trinity is the other members of the Trinity. Jesus, within the context of the Trinity, and I'm saying this to make a point, 
never says, hey, what's in it for me? It's always about the other members of the Trinity, and that's why the, the Trinity is actually described as a communion of joy, that God is a God of joy because there's that other focus. So there's authority submission, there's oneness, and there's that focus on the other member. And get this, let me just say theology is practical. Think about this in terms and maybe talk about this as a couple. Some marriages have authority submission down, but without oneness. And when that happens, the marriage becomes harsh, domineering, and typically husband-controlled. Other marriages have oneness down, but they don't have authority of submission, so the marriage becomes emotive, wimpy, and sometimes wife-controlled. But marriages with both authority submission and oneness lead to the grace of life and Christ control. So we're to emulate God's design. And submission is modeling the character of Christ. Submission is an attribute of God, and it glorifies Him when it's seen in us. And by the way, your children will never understand the Godhead, unless they see you functioning in your roles the way God designed. Also, submission of verse 1 is found, secondly in your outline, by Christ's example. By His example. See how He begins again verse 1. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive. Now, some have said in the same way is referring to the same way citizens submit to government, slaves submit to masters. But the context and the content demand that Peter's actually saying, submit like Christ did. Submit like Christ did. Just like Christ was silent under unjust treatment, submit the same way Christ did when he submitted himself to the unjust suffering of the cross, which is what Peter just described at the end of chapter 2. Take a look at the end of chapter 2 there. Here's an example for all wives to follow, starting at verse 21. Look at verse 21. For you have been, let me get this right, called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example, that word example is actually the, the true term means, you know how when children write letters out and there's, then there's letters above and then they imitate the letters below to learn how to write? Are you with me on that? That's that word. That word means exactly that. It's to follow exactly his example for you to follow in his steps. And then it says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, what did he say in back? I'm going to get you back? No, he, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. See, Peter uses our Lord as the example of submission to follow, the sinless, innocent Christ submitted to sinful, guilty, and perfect men. And Peter says, let Christ and the cross motivate your submission. Submit even if your husband is imperfect or unsaved. But understand, he says, not to every man. Verse 1 says, to your own husband. You see it there? To your own husband. Be submissive to your own husband. And literally, it is the text is, to own man or to your own man. A Christian wife is not to be submissive to every man, but to her own man. We don't get it in this culture, but back then, in that century, and a lot of times throughout church history, when a man was over you as a woman, either a father or a husband or a brother, there was protection. But if there wasn't a man over you, then there was starvation and all kinds of danger. You needed protection. 
That's a little bit of the imagery you have here. And God says, to your own man. That's the object of submission. The word own there actually is used to describe not public land, but private land. It's your private husband. It's your own man. Submit to, to your man, my man. Okay, are you with me? And he's a man. The word is anthropos here. He's talking about not Peter Pan or a guy who's playing video games all the time, but a man. And we're going to look at what that man is tomorrow. So a wife submits to her husband because submission is an attribute of Christ and because it imitates Christ's example on the cross. But, but how can a submissive wife impact her husband, maybe who is not yet submitted to Christ? Well, number two in your outline, live God's word to impact your husband. This is for Christian and non-Christian. Okay? If you have a Christian husband, non-Christian husband, live God's word to impact your husband. Take a look at verse 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, verses 1 through 6 are not merely for wives of unsaved husbands. Peter does describe the possibility of some husbands being lost with that phrase, so that if any of them, but he's not saying that all of them are unsaved. So he describes these men here as disobedient. And that word disobedient, when he says disobedient to the word, it's used three other times in 1 Peter to describe someone who's unsaved. So we know that there are some of the husbands that are unsaved. But that's a factual, ongoing, present tense pattern of a man who is not following Christ, is disobedient on a continual way to the word of God, and he must be won to Christ by the power of the gospel of grace lived out through a wife's lifestyle. Wife's lifestyle. Now, how did she get married to a non-Christian man? I mean, just... Stay with me here. Probably three options. One, they were both unsaved and she came to Christ. Two, she was saved but violated 1 Corinthians 7.39 to marry only in the Lord. Or three, she was saved but didn't wait long enough for her young man to be proven fruitful over time and then he demonstrated that he wasn't a genuine believer. There's only three possibilities there. But most young Christian gals, you know, between 18 to 24, kind of want to marry a combo man. You know what a combo man is? Combo man is a future husband of Brad Pitt and John MacArthur. Okay, that's a, that's a combo, man. They want everything the world's got, and they also want, you know, spiritual depth. Uh, interesting enough, um, when they get to be 25, they want a man who's active in church. When they get to be 30, they want someone who goes to church. When they get 35, they want someone who knows where church is. When they get to be 40, they want someone who can spell the word church, Okay. Here's the key if you're single. Want to find the right mate? Marry someone who loves Jesus Christ more than you. And then who has proven that love for Christ over faithfulness in service to Christ. Over a period of time, a year plus, so you're not, you know you got the real deal. Because once you're married, 1 Corinthians 7 says, remain as you are. Remain as you are. Don't send that non-Christian wife away. Don't send that unsaved husband away. And if you wives are married to a non-Christian husband, then Peter says, live God's word to impact them for the gospel. Live it. Look at the husband in verse 1 is disobedient to the word. Take a look at it. So the assumption is, in verse 1, is the safe wife, the saved wife, will be obedient to God's word, right? He's disobedient to the word. So the assumption here is she's going to be obedient to the word. 
It's only those wives who are obedient to the Word of God who are submissive to Christ, and only the wives who are submissive to Christ who can be submissive to their husbands, plus only those wives who are obedient to the Word of God over time in a pattern of life, not perfectly, but progressively, whom God will use possibly to lead their husbands to Christ. Obedience. Do you understand obedience? It's to be dependent. You don't wait for a feeling. You don't wait to be saturated with the gospel. You you obey. You dependently obey. You engage your will. You do what is right until it feels right. And he's saying, look, if you're going to reach your husband, you need to be obedient to the Word of God. Not perfect, but progressively obedient to the Word of God. You want to impact your you're marginally saved or you're not sure where your husband's at or you'd like to you know, prod him along, then you be obedient to the Word of God. That's the healthy Christian wife. And the verb that says they may be one in verse 1 is future tense, and Peter wants Christian wives to know to continue hoping in the future that they might be the instrument that God uses to win their husband to Christ. And God is offering hope here, not a guarantee, but a genuine hope that by using the passive voice here, he's telling they may be one means that God is the one who's got to save them. She can't. God has to do it. And save wives can be that effective tool that God will use to save. But how are wives to live God's word to become that effective tool to impact their unsaved husband? Look at what he says at the end of verse 1 and 2. That they may be one without a word by the what? <clears throat> oh, come on, answer. By the what? Behavior. behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Simply stated, focus on your walk over your top. Actions speak louder than what? Words. And unsaved husbands are to be one without a word. He uses a play on words here. The husband who is disobedient to the Word of God is going to be won by the spoken word. He's basically saying, stop lipping, start living. Stop sharing, start showing. Be the silent preacher. By the beauty and loveliness of your behavior, have him rethink his beliefs. By the beauty of your conduct, have him notice Christ. Refuse to make talking your primary witness. Remember what he said about Christ? Look back again at chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He's saying a very powerful point here. Jesus did not use talk in the midst of his suffering. And Peter says, verse 21, that was the example for us to follow. Stop speaking, start showing. Conduct over communication. Lifestyle over lecture. This is really important. The rest of the passage, verses 2 through 6, loudly shouts for you to be quiet. Use behavior, internals, character as your strongest witness. Become the silent preacher. Yeah, he needs to hear the gospel, but Peter says he must primarily see it lived out. Don't nag. Don't nag an unsaved spouse. Bomb him with love. God wants your conduct to point to Christ. Minimize the witness of your words. Maximize the witness of your ways. And the Greek word behavior here in verses 1 and 2 has to do with observable behavior. Moving about. He sees you. He sees how you live. You demonstrate that. And the word actually hints of demeanor. Your facial expression. Your eyes brightening when you see your spouse. Your smile being encouraging. And sure, with an unsaved husband... There is going to be behavior you will not like. Even with a Christian husband, there's going to be behavior you will not like. Don't say amen. But you can always honor him as your God-appointed head. 
Yeah, it's true. Some of your behavior, wives, will be difficult. You know, that, that, that horrible term that's used that's so true and difficult, menopause. One of the most godly women I know, apart from my bride, said to me, Chris, do you realize the difference between a rabid pit bull and a woman in menopause? And she said, lipstick was the answer. Um, <clears throat> so there's going to be behavior that's going to be tense. And, and Peter helps you in verse 2 to know which two behaviors are the most important. Did you notice that? Take a look at the end of verse 2. It, it, it turns out that these two behaviors are the ones that husbands bring up most in marital counseling. Look at the end of verse 2. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste is primarily used about physical purity. So save yourself for one man only, and then once married, you give yourself exclusively from the heart to only one man. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but the teaching of Song of Solomon is really pointed, and it has three A's in Solomon. If you want to write these down, that's fine. Be attractive to your husband, be available to your husband, and be, the third letter A, anticipatory to your husband. You're to take care of your husband physically, chaste. You're exclusively his. You gave yourself to him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5, it commands a wife and a husband four times. Husbands and wives four times are commanded in 1 Corinthians 7 to take care of each other's physical needs in marriage. And that is not an easy assignment for a woman who's married to an indifferent, unsaved, and possibly brutish, unsaved husband. But it is that observable conduct on the part of a godly wife that God will use to win that unsaved husband to Christ. And along with the second most important behavior in verse 2, if you look at it, is respect or respectful behavior. You see that there? Chaste and respect. And this word is used 93 times in the New Testament, translated fear or be afraid or respect. It has to do with thinking of your husband as being great. How do you like that? Want to influence your husband? Think he's awesome. Some of you are going, no way. I ain't going to do that. Look, this passage takes it a step further. Did you look at verse 6? Remember when you looked at Come on, look at verse 6. What does Sarah call Abraham? What's he call him? Whoa. I, I looked at Jean one time and I said, see that there? She goes, yeah, Lord with a little L. The respect here is a kind of awe. It's be in awe of your husband. You want to influence your husband? Be in awe. Be respectful. Be chaste. Be exclusive. And you're not going to find this kind of respect on a sitcom in the media, right? It's a powerful tool for God to use in a marriage. Wives, if you want to honor Christ and taste the blessings of biblical marriage, then respect your husband until he's respectable and possibly win your husband to Christ. You know, most men would rather be respected than loved. Do you realize that? It's true. You know it's true. You can say complimenting things to a man, and he'll believe them even though he shouldn't. Right. Come on. You're not fat. You're stocky. You know, you're just big bone. Yeah, yeah, I'm big bone. That's right. That's right. You're not weird. You're just creative, honey. You do things differently. You're artsy. Yeah, yeah, I'm artsy. No, you're weird. 
you know, honey, would you open this jar? And he takes that thing and pops that thing open. Here you go, dear. You know, I mean, it just feels that respect. Live God's word. Impact your husband. Don't just say it, show it. Respect him. Well, what else is a woman to do? Well, not only let Christ and the cross motivate your submission and live God's word to impact your husband, which, by the way, is a huge assignment, very difficult. And you say, is that respect all that big a deal? Listen, remember how Ephesians 5.33 ends? Remember that? He says, a wife must see to it that she respect her husband. This is consistent through the New Testament. Well, what else is a woman? Number three in your outline, prioritize your character over your clothing. Prioritize your character over your clothing. Look at verse 3. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, Peter isn't saying don't braid your hair. Don't freak out. Nor is he saying don't wear jewelry. Otherwise, in the Greek, he'd also be saying don't wear dresses. All right? So he's not saying that. So turn, if you would, if you want to, or read it there in your outline, Isaiah chapter 3. The braiding of the hair that he's talking about here is elaborate hairdos. And wearing gold jewelry is wearing so much gold jewelry that you look like Mr. T, um, if you remember him from long ago. Uh, It's not two or four earrings, it's 20 earrings. It's not one ring, but rings on every finger. It's not one bracelet, but 40. So much so that when you walk, you jingle. Ching, ching, ching. Now, the Bible uses a word that we use in different ways, so I'm, I'm just going to say it, but it's, it's a biblical word, tinkle, okay? Isaiah 3 references the practice of ancient Judean women overdressing. This is 2,800 years ago. Look at how relevant this is, Isaiah three sixteen through 24. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes, and they go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. That's the ching, ching, ching as they walk along. Verse 18, in that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festival robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. He's saying the women are overdoing it. Are you picking that up here? And many women 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire had very little to pass the time. They couldn't work. They couldn't have a job. They couldn't compete in the games. They had many slaves, sometimes for their kids in their house. And so women had too much time on their hands, and they spent all their time working on their appearance, and they kept adding things to their appearance. And added to that is the natural fleshly tendency of women and sometimes men to get what she wants by flaunting her beauty, using her outward appearance as a weapon. And instead of putting her trust in God, where she trusts in her looks to gain love, attention, care, power by the way she dresses. And Peter says, don't let your adornment be merely external. It's not saying that throwing a little paint on the barn is not a good idea once in a while, okay? Adornment, sorry, that was a Texas comment, but I just (laughs) flew right over you there. Um, Adornment is the Greek word cosmos where we get our English word cosmetic, externals. So he's saying, stop working on all the externals. 
you know, it's, not, it's okay to have some effort in the externals. Just stop putting all your effort in the externals. And then he says, don't let your appearance be merely surface and outward. A godly wife doesn't focus on all her clothing and appearance. She focuses on character. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4, come on, look at it. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality, internal character, quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He uses the strongest single word for contrast here with but. It's a single word, but, Allah. And then he uses the strongest verb in the entire passage, the the continual command. You see, let it be, let it be the imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet spirit. So it's not wrong to do your hair, wear jewelry. The point is the outward adornment should not be your primary preoccupation. Verse 4 says, let it be not what others think about you, but what God thinks about you that motivates you. The deep quality of the internal you, the new heart, the new creation. So yes, friends, eat good, work out, sleep properly, watch your weight, but make certain you focus more on your heart before the Lord. And Peter reminds his readers, just like the world's going to end, so is this body. But your inner man, your inner hidden man, the hidden person, verse 4, the imperishable, that which will last forever can't be destroyed. Every person in this room, you you get this, is eternal. Every single being in this room is going to live forever. The only question is, where? You know, the, the, the students are really big on YOLO, right? You, you only live once, little acronym. It's not YOLO, it's YOLF. You only live forever. The question is, where? That's the issue. Fashion's going to change. Your looks are going to change. But true Eternal beauty in a woman can never be taken from her. Never. It's true. You say, what is that quality? Well, verse 4, a gentle and quiet spirit. That's an imperishable quality. Want to impact your husband? Be gentle. That's the compassionate way you treat others around you. Quiet is her heart, which is at peace before God, even when married to a brutish, unsaved man in a persecuted culture. So she sows strength under control, that's gentleness, and she is calm in her heart in a crisis that's quiet. It's not talking about a woman who whispers, kind of a false external humility. It's not, or a woman who never talks. You can talk. The question is, is there strength under control in the heart, and is there calmness in a crisis which is quiet? And a heart-beautiful woman, who, by the way, always is beautiful externally, since her heart begins to leak out in her appearance, is not all about cosmetics and clothing, but about Christ and the cross. And verse 4 says, this quality is valued by God. You see it there? He says, this is precious in his sight. Precious. Literally, Peter says, God continually treasures a gentle and quiet heart. He prizes this quality in women. He respects this in wives. And the world prizes your clothes, and Christ prizes your character. One more time. The world prizes your clothes, and Christ prizes your character. So what do you prize? So let Christ motivate your submission. Live out God's Word, demonstrated by two key behaviors. Prioritize your character over clothing. Number four, imitate the models God has given you. Imitate the models that God has given you. Some wives might ask, is this normal for wives to act this way? 
Is this really normal for everyday Christians? I mean, is this what God expects of women since the beginning? And the answer is yes. Look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. He's given authority to what he's just talked about. He's quoting the Old Testament Scriptures, so that gives him the authority. And verse 5, the holy women, meaning women who have been made members of God's chosen family, now set apart for God alone, those are the ones who hope in God. She doesn't hope in her husband. She doesn't hope in getting a husband or a boyfriend. She's not putting her hope in herself or in her clothing or her appearance. Or she's not putting her hope in her children. She's not hoping that her emotions that are out of control right now will somehow stop. She's putting her hope in God. These wives did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were intellectually superior or spiritually superior or more deep, they submitted to their husbands because they were confident that God would reward all those who put their hope in Him. Hope is reaching up and resting in God. And so gorgeous Sarah, look at verse 6, was so confident in God that she actually submitted to Abraham when he lied not once but twice about her. Wives, can you picture this? You're in a difficult situation and some guy's scoping in on you. You're married to your husband. And he says, she's my sister. You'd go home and you'd ream that guy. Right? And Abraham didn't just do it once. He did it what? Twice. And what was Sarah's response? This is what blows me away. You're my Lord. Wow. Now that is incredible. And like Peter's readers, these persecuted and pressured wives, you too will prove to be a godly woman. If you follow God's word, verse 6, do what is right, not give in to the woman's greatest struggle, which is fear. And godly women, you live out the truth. You don't allow your feelings to stop you from being obedient. That's what God's called you to. That's a healthy Christian wife. None of us measure up. No woman in this room lives this out perfectly. The question is, is that your heart? And are you about this process? Now, I could go on and on, which is what the preacher says when he runs out of material. I could go on and on and on. But understand, let me give you some closing thoughts. And understand, I I spent six weeks just working through this passage with my church. I just gave you the high points. There's a lot more here. But today, are you preparing the road that you will walk tomorrow by how you live today? Number one, you don't suddenly become a godly woman or a godly man. When you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, that doesn't all of a sudden, now they're godly. You grow to become this kind of woman. By the choices that you make, by the Bible that you study and live, and by the models that you follow now and the models in Scripture. And you put your hope and confidence in God. But you need to start making those choices along the way. And over time, God will transform you. That's how he does it. Number two, when you suffer or you're lonely, like Peter's audience in this letter, the clothes covering your soul are are kind of taken off, exposing the real you. You get exposed. 
And when God blesses you with those kind of trials, don't panic, don't feel sorry for yourself, put all your hope in God. That's why he brought you to that place. Sometimes God brings you to an end of yourself. Your marriage is maybe tense, maybe crumbling. God may use this weekend just to begin to put you back into place, to call you to repentance, or to call you to walking in dependent obedience. But put your hope in God. Trust in him. Don't keep your... What happens in marital counseling all the time is they're always focused on the spouse. And the number one issue with the counselor or the pastor is to try to turn their focus and attention to get it onto God and His Word. And you rely on Him, and you walk obedient to His Word, and then you watch how that relationship changes. Number three, no one can live these truths unless they have turned from their sin and now depend on Christ alone for salvation. Understand that only those who've surrendered to Christ by believing that He is God who became a man, God lived a perfect life on this planet, veiled as a man, offered Himself to die in our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin that we deserved, rose from the dead, and it's the only way His children can be made right with Him now and forever. Only that person can live these truths, i.e., you can't live this unless you're born again. You can't live this unless you're saved. You can't. And as a Christian, you can't live this in your own strength, because if you're not in the Spirit, you're in the what? Flesh. Therefore, you need to be dependent upon the Spirit of God moment by moment, walking in dependence according to the Word of God in order to live these truths out. And number four, many Christian husbands don't make it easy for their wives to actually like them. A lot of Christian men are slobs, and they stink, and they're rough. You know, and they worked really, 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 really hard to woo their life, uh, their wife, and then as soon as they got her, they went and moved on. And husbands, you need to work at being attractive and lovable and gracious. And every genuinely saved woman in this room wants to live verses 1 through 6, but you can make it a whole lot easier by living verse 7. And we'll look at verse 7 tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray, Father, that we might be brought to a greater sense of health in the church, not only in the way that we live in dependence upon you, but in the way that we also behave in our relationships. Father, we realize that any person or family aspiring to ministry in this room is somewhat called in a very real way to be working on their marriage, that their home itself is a, a foundation of credibility. Father, there are women in this room who are widows. Uh, they're single. We pray that they might be able to emulate these truths, demonstrate this godliness, even outside the context of marriage, that they would be an example to follow for others. And Father, there may be individuals or couples in this room who don't know you. They think they do or they're unsure. We pray, Father, that you would begin to draw them to yourself and help them to see their own sin and their desperate need for Jesus Christ. But we pray, Father, that you would be blessed and honored by the way we respond to your word 
Uh, Father, it's, it's not so much the sermon itself, it's the hearing of your word and how we respond and that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices and come under its truth. And Father, we pray that we might do so for your glory and for your honor. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.